sit down, sinners. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> all right. First of all, there's this beautiful pink knife here that was found in the parking lot. And if any of you get up during my sermon, no. I'm asking, does this belong to anybody? If it does, if you lost a really nice pink knife, I'm going to put it here by Callan. Callan is the keeper of the knife. If you own the knife, you must... Prove that you own the knife with a picture of you holding the knife. No, just let us know if it's yours. It's right here. All right. I know the the timing of that mixtape couldn't have been better. We're actually, I mean, really, hello, God. Like, that was was really good for a few different reasons. But I am talking about marriage and divorce, which is a very commonly preached on topic. Um, But it's also one of the hardest topics because it divides the church very frequently. There's, it applies to everybody. Uh, Everybody has been affected by divorce. If somebody in your family has been divorced, your parents, your siblings, your best friends maybe, or any of your friends, or you yourself, everyone has been affected by the things that come with divorce, the grief, the turmoil, Sometimes the long, drug-out court hearings, all of the nastiness that has come with divorce. But not all of us are married, and I understand that if you look at the sermon title, you might go, eh, uh, I can tune out for this one. But again, you know somebody who's married. Maybe you're not married yet, and you plan to be someday. Um, maybe you never plan to be married, but you're going to be an influence in the lives of those who are. You're going to be often in a place where you can hold people accountable, like Siobhan and Callan just talked about, even if you're not married. Um, So this is going to apply to everybody. So before uh, we get going on the message part, I do want to pray. I have a lot of slides. Callan's going to try to keep up, but I I will try to give you a wink if, (laughs) if if you need to go to the next slide. Okay, so let's take a a time to pray here. And if you are married, I ask that you come together as a couple right now and pray together in this moment. Pray for each other as I pray as well. If you're here without your spouse, take this time to pray for your spouse and for your marriage. And we're going to do it again at the end, but with new things to pray about. All right, so let's pray with me, please. Heavenly Father, thank you for marriage for the good times and the bad times in marriage that refine us, that sanctify us through your spirit, that we can be in partnership with someone else who is also made in your image but so different than ourselves. Lord, I ask that you have a stirring of hearts in this congregation and in all of the hearts of the people that we're going to go out and affect from here on out that you show them that your will for marriage is beautiful, that your will for marriage is good and full of love and a reflection of your love for us. And I ask that as a church we do a good job of demonstrating that so that we can highlight how wonderful you are in our own relationships. 
Lord, I ask for peace in the hearts of those who are processing or grieving divorce, whether it be their own or someone else's. Lord, I know that sometimes divorce can feel like you're processing a loss. Sometimes it feels like you're processing just starting over and losing everything. So, Lord, I ask that you give comfort to those who were in those trials as well today and that you give them hope that you have plans for them that are beautiful as well. Lord, I ask that you give me the words of wisdom to share your truth. And I ask that if I totally botch it, Lord, you find one of these wonderful people to confront me and teach me as well. Lord, I thank you for my own marriage, for the children that you've brought to me in this marriage that it was totally of you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. amen. All right, so um, I am an expert on marriage. <laughs> no, but I, I've been married for 11 years, so it's not like a terribly long time, but I'm not, I'm not a newbie to marriage, okay? Um, so I've been married for 11 years, and both my husband and I's parents are divorced, very different situations. Um, my parents got divorced um, when I was 18, but I had five younger siblings who were still in the mix at that time. So it affected me greatly, even though I wasn't part of the custody battles that went on for years, it affected all of the kids that I really cared about. Um, and so there was a lot of feeling that I was part of that in more ways than I actually was. And those divorces both happened for very different and very valid reasons. There was sin. Really nasty, gross, heavy sin. So um, I'm sure that that is familiar to you. Like I said, we've kind of all experienced divorce, whether it's in our own lives or in the lives of somebody close to us. Um, the statistics are, you know, 50%, 50%. So I guarantee you're affected by divorce in your life. And ultimately, sometimes, you know, we see divorces happen because of silly things. They don't put in the work. It's hard work. Being married is really hard. Yeah. Really hard. <laughs> sometimes it's because they just decided that they're better as friends. I've seen that happen. Uh, sometimes, though, and a lot of the time, I want to say most of the time, it's for very valid reasons. And it's for a hardness of heart. It's for sin. Um, oftentimes from both parties. There's usually not one guilty party. In fact, there's never, there's never one guilty party in a marriage. But sometimes one sin shines a lot brighter than the other. And we go, oh yeah, you deserve better. So for, but for David and I, let's just go back to, to my 11 years here. It's been a breeze. Super easy. No, it's been a breeze if you, if you think of it as like a little breeze that then all of a sudden turns into this like crashing storm and like tornadoes and hurricanes and like all the things that go with us. This is what I say the first year of our marriage was like. It was a disaster. But, but you know, we didn't exactly see it coming. It was like one of those freak storms, like a cyclone that just hit and this whirlwind through 
and it was it was wild and then it was like one thing after another after another and then pretty soon it's not just this crazy storm but there are actual carnivorous sharks in the road and it was terrifying and to be fair I got married at 19 yeah woof <laughs> so I was really young and we were both extremely stupid <laughs> Really, truly, um, really stupid. <laughs> David's like, no, I wasn't. Yeah, no, it really was. It was, it was really hard. We, it's gotten better. He's he's not as stupid. <laughs> no, no, it's still hard. But back then, it was even harder. And and it wasn't like it just like got better after that. I mean, it was like storm and then a relief and then a storm and then a relief and then maybe a little bit longer of a relief. Maybe things were like, oh, that's the best it's ever been. And then whoosh, more sharks. And there's, a, there's like five sequels to this movie, if that doesn't tell you anything. But no, really, don't get me wrong, though. There have been a lot of beautiful, wonderful moments, too. I mentioned um, in my prayer, which I thank God for every day, our beautiful children, um, who in many ways I think saved our marriage, um, and not that you should have kids to save your marriage, but that when you have kids, it give you, gives you perspective on your marriage. Okay, So it did that for me, for both of us, and they both give us very different perspectives because they're very different little humans. And then we had the pleasure of bringing into our home various uh, siblings of mine to raise and bring up as well. And so even though those didn't come directly from us, they also showed us strengths and weaknesses in our marriage. When all of a sudden you're parenting teenagers that you didn't get to form as small children, you really learn more layers of who somebody is. Can you love this child as your own? That's hard by itself, and then you have to watch someone else do the same struggle. How do you discipline and do all those things? You've got to learn all those over again. Foster parents over here going, yep, mm -hmm, yep, yeah. Mm -hmm. oh, but there, there's really, really beautiful, wonderful moments that are truly unattainable as a single person. And the movie that I love to uh, use to embody that would be the Titanic where you have your dating scene right here. <sighs> it's just so beautiful, and I just can't wait. I remember thinking on my wedding day, I could not be any more in love with somebody. <laughs> no, I, and, and then, you know, a couple of years later, I think the same thing. I'm like, I knew nothing then, two years ago. And then now I'm at 11 years and I'm like, I had no clue how deep love could be, how hard it can be, and how ever-changing it can be. I really love this because I was like looking online at these pictures and I had to find the pictures where they, there was this couple that did these photos down here in the corner where they showed that they, they really could have put Jack on that door. <laughs> It's like, it's like, no, no, you better not risk it. It made me think, it made me think whenever I go to um, like a bachelorette party or a bridal shower and they have you do those um, little cards of like wedding advice, I always write have separate comforters. Always have your own blankets, 
because my husband and I learn quickly that I will hog the door or the blanket. So just, just get your own. <laughs> just get your own. It's not, it's not romantic to have one blanket, I promise. No, but really, uh, David and I, like I said, it's been hard, it's been good, um, but we've both done things that should have ended our marriages, or our marriage, not our plural, but our marriage. We should have, we could have, we've both broken vows, um, and we've been on that brink of divorce before, where it was a daily conversation, it was... On our minds, we were walking through our days not knowing if it was going to continue. It was lots of tears and lots of apologies, but also how do we do this without like, just reliving this pain all the time? And how do we do this without having to change ourselves so much because we are both selfish and we don't want to? Um, so we've both, we've both been there. I'm guilty of those things. Um, and we've experienced um, a lot after that, too, of going through the process of reconciliation and building what I considered a new marriage after that. Um, and, it, and I know that, like, the, that that process affected you know, him and I on a really deep, crazy level. And, and there was a lot of pride there. Like, I don't want to be a divorced woman. And, and selfishly, there were moments where I was like, that's why we're not going to get divorced is because I refuse to give up. And I'm sure. And then like the next day, I was like, well. <laughs> uh, no, we're both guilty of hogging the life raft. We really are. And we've both been drowning. Um, and we've both let each other drown. Um, and we're both sinners in a marriage. We're both two annoying people trying to make it work, and it, you know how that is. But you guys are too, so that's the thing. <laughs> it's like, I don't know that I could be married to any of y'all either. <laughs> so no, I don't really consider myself an expert on divorce or marriage or any of that, but I do believe after having experienced some of the things that I've experienced and having studied scripture to the extent that I have, not that I have fully exhausted any of it, but that I do think that the church gets marriage and divorce wrong a lot, which is a shame because it's a picture of Christ and the church, and we're so confused about what that looks like. So before I dig into scripture with you, because we're going to read a ton of scripture today, Yay. Um, I want to pose a little moral dilemma to get us started. I want to tell a little story, and I want to make us really evaluate what we know about God's character, um, what we know about his love and his opinions, because God has those, about divorce. I want to know what we know. I want to challenge what we truly believe and what we think and what we've experienced, and are there exceptions to God hating divorce? So I want to really, I want to challenge that. So I've talked before when I've come up here about my story a little bit. Um, it's usually the, the reason I get invited to talk so I could tell people about how traumatic my life was. Um, so I'm going to tell just a little story. I had two parents in my home until, like I said, I was 18. Um, and statistically, that is said to be the best thing for children, to have both parents in the home, right? 
We all know that. Um, for me, that was very much not the fact. I, I don't think it was the best thing, and I'll explain why. My dad was awful. Awful in all the ways, all the, all the types of abuse. Um, and he was an alcoholic, severe alcoholic. He did not have a job. He did not care for his family. But he did know how to make a lot of babies. So <laughs> there were a lot of us. Um, but I'm really talking about true, real abuse. I watched my mom deteriorate as a person. Um, and I suffered a lot of those things, along with my siblings, of being the target of his abuse when it wasn't on my mother. And those are things that no child, I don't think any of us would ever argue with this, no child should ever have to experience, ever. Right? As a parent, if you are a parent, you know that that like mama bear instinct of like, I would never let anything happen to my child and we go above and beyond to protect them from being abused and misused and maltreated. So that, that in your head, maybe you know where I'm going with this, but I want to real quick ask you if you know what an ACE score is. ACE, like ACE, A-C-E, like the card, ACE score. So an ACE score stands for Adverse Childhood Experiences. And I've done lots of trainings on this because I'm the director at a workshop or at a community center and I see kids come in there all the time. So I make my whole staff, Kim's nodding, I've made a drug her to trainings. You're coming with me. Because we see kids come in all the time and we need to be able to identify these things. So we've gotten really familiar with ACE. It's a scoring system that is clinically used for determining a child's level of trauma. And with this, there's statistics for different cognitive, mental, emotional, physical, and behavioral outcomes. It changes everything in a person. And there's a long list of things that count as ACE scores. And I'm just gonna name a few of them. Incarcerated parent, having an incarcerated parent is an, an ACE score. Um, physical abuse, ACE score. Sexual abuse, ACE score. Being the child of a divorced is an ACE score. I mean, there's no disputing that it really affects our children. So, divorce having serious consequences. Like I said, we know this. this is, it's not news. It has general effects. It has lasting trauma. It can really break people, but so can abuse. So, I remember there's the story. I know, it took forever to get there. Um, I was like six or seven years old. And I had learned for the first time, I don't remember who had told me about it, maybe it was like another kid and their parents were getting divorced, but I had learned for the first time what divorce was. I didn't even know it was a thing. And I was like, so stoked to tell my mom, like, oh my gosh, guess what? So this, I remember very distinctly, she's in her bedroom, she's crying, like she, she was always crying, things were hard. And I literally remember like, barging into her room like door. I'm like, guess what, mom? And I tell her what divorce is. I'm like, this is this exciting. Like, we don't have to do this for forever. Mom, you could just like, you just have to fill out these papers. Like, again, I'm like six years old, so I don't actually know what it all entails, but I just know I was elated. I was so excited. Mom, guess what? And so I told her, like, there's this thing called divorce, and you don't have to be married to dad anymore. And I remember saying, we can be free. Like, for a six-year-old to have that idea of what their life is like, that they, I felt the, the need to use the word free because I knew we were not. 
That's like now as an adult heavy to think back on, but I'm not exaggerating. That is literally, it was the best news ever. And I expected my mom to feel the same way. Um, but she burst into even harder tears and she explained to me in way too much detail all of her fears about leaving. And they were fears that I know now as an adult were not rooted in truth, but they were really valid, like petrifying fears for her. that She could not leave and she could not get us away from him. And I just kind of like remember watching her and she's like, just spilling out all of these reasons, because like, obviously she had thought about it. Like, this isn't news to her. And I just remember just like my, like my little excited heart just like sinking and feeling from like this high of like hope to this utter despair of like, we're never getting out. This is not going to change. And I, I like lost all hope in that moment. And I, I don't think it was until I was a teenager, maybe like 16 or so, where I brought it up to her again. Um, and I know like my story is not that unique. There's a lot of these situations. And I, I know a lot of you know people, or maybe you were that kid too. Um, and, and there's always the judgment on people like that. Like, why did she stay? You know, she carries the the burden of having let this man hurt her or her children. Why did she let him do it? Why did she stay? It's her fault for that too. Um, and my mom's apologized to me so many times. For that. I'm sorry I didn't take you away sooner. I'm sorry I didn't take you away sooner. And I knew when she said that that she didn't know any better. Um, but that's the same for so many women is there's the fear of leaving. And for my mom, who left the faith because of this, um, it was because the church told her, taught her that divorce is a more terrible sin. It brings more terrible judgment. It harms your children even more. It carries the most terrible consequences for you and your kids, for your whole family, than if you just stay. I've heard that a lot. So... Does God hate divorce? That's what I want to look at with you today. So I'm gonna, I pre-picked my readers. I've got James. James, I'm going to have you open up. We're going to be in Jeremiah 3, 6 through 14 to start. I have the slides too, um, I believe. And we, I have up here um, New American Standard, but whatever you're comfortable reading is fine. Jeremiah 3, 6 through 14. Oh, Siobhan, don't interrupt me. All right. All right, go ahead. Thank you. All right. Then the Lord said to me in the days of Josiah the king, have you seen the faithless Israel did? She went up on every high hill and, every under, and under every green tree, and she was a harlot there. I thought, after she has done all these things, she'll return to me, but she did not, and her treacherous sister Judah saw it. And, as, and I saw that for all the adulteries of faithful Israel, I had sent her away and given her a writ of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she went and was a harlot also. Because of the likeness of, the, of her um, harlotry, she polluted the land and committed adultery 
with stones and trees. Yet in spite of all of this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with all her heart, but rather in deception, declares the Lord. And the Lord said to me, faithless Israel has proved herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, return faithful, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look upon you in anger, for I am gracious, declares the Lord, and I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your inequity, that you have transgressed against the Lord your God, and have scattered your favors to the strangers under every green tree. And you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. Return, O faithless sons, declares the Lord. For I am a master to you, and I will not take you from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. Cool. Thank you. So before um, we go any further in digging into this verse, I do want to do something that may seem a little rudimentary, but I think necessary going forward is defining what the word covenant means. So let's do this really quick, because I don't want to like make confusion down the road. So a covenant is an oath, a contract, or binding agreement between two parties that relies on both parties for fulfillment. This isn't the same as just making a promise to someone. This is both parties for fulfillment is the definition of the covenant here. And promise is a declaration or assurance that one will do a particular thing or that a particular thing will happen. I promise I will get you ice cream after you go to this appointment without screaming. Yeah, who said that? I read it. Okay, so these are these, are these. I just I want you to have this in your head when we talk about these things. Okay, so just as Rob Bass and DJ Easy Rock said, it takes two. Thank you. It makes two. It takes two to make a thing go right. Um, and so that's what we're talking about. It takes two to make it out of sight. All right, so while we're on these definitions, I also want to go back to Jeremiah 3.8. Let's go to uh, verse 8, and it says, I saw that for all the adulteries of the faithless Israel, I had sent her away and given her a certificate of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she went and prostituted herself also. So I thought this was really interesting when I was going through these verses because there's two different words used here that Jesus, or that God said, he used, that he did, these are action words, that he did, um, and these are shalah, which means sent her away. And when you look at the definition of it, it actually is more of a release. It's a setting something free. And it, again, it made me think all the way back to when I was little, and I was like, we well, can be free. It's that word of being out from under something being out from under a contract, you are free from it. Being out from, um, being out from slavery, we would say you are free. That is what this word means to me, to set something or someone free. So, um, and again, too, because I'm, I'm kind of like, my brain is all over the place when I'm reading things, and I sometimes I have to read things four or five times, and my brain's like, oh, it's kind of like this. Oh, it's kind of like that. Um, and it also made me think of, like, that cheesy phrase when pe that people say, like, if you love him, let him go. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> I see it. I see it. Yeah, I get it. So obviously God loves Israel. We, we know that. 
Um, And we see that in verses 11 on um, because we see later that God invites repentance. And we're going to talk about that more in a little bit. But let's keep going. The other word that is used is this word I do not dare try to pronounce, but it literally means certificate of divorce. It's literally that. Literally that. I looked it up. It's literally. I'm like, they did it. They got it right. Wow. (laughs) Amazing. Um, But it literally means a certificate of divorce. And I don't actually like, well, I I don't know. Maybe God did. But I don't think he rained down like divorce papers and was like, there they are, Israel. But he could have. I don't know. (laughs) I don't actually know if he did. Maybe he gave them a signal in that way. (laughs) But um, it's a legal term. Basically, it's a legal term that signifies the breaking of a contract, the end of something in a legal way. So not only did God let Israel go, but he also gave them a certificate of divorce. God's divorced. Did you know that? Isn't that crazy? Wow. He's so relatable. All right. So Israel had cheated. Israel cheated. That's what we would say today. Israel sought refuge elsewhere and turned their hearts towards false gods. They turned their hearts towards themselves. They hardened their hearts, you could say. And they broke the covenant. Because, you know, it takes two to make a thing go right. They didn't. And so God, I, I I love this. Because, like, in my head, I think of God as, like, OG, like, he's like, hey, y'all prostitutes, and he calls them that, like, like, I mean, he's, he's not gentle about it, and we should be gentle, you're right, Siobhan, but he's not really that gentle about saying, like, you, you guys are straight up, did this, you guys are prostitutes, Judah, also, also prostitute, I'm like, whoa, so, but I, I, I don't know, I see God <laughs> that way sometimes. And um, so I just, I was baffled by, it, by that fact that he just like laid it out there. Like, this is just what you are. So all right, let's move on to the next slide. We're going to jump into Malachi now. Malachi 2, 10 through 16. I have Kim reading this one, I believe. So we're going to look a little bit more about whether... Or not, God hates divorce while we're on this theme, and so we're going to go into Malachi. Do we not all have one Father? Is it not one God who has created us? Why do we deal treacherously, each against his brother, so as to profane the covenant of our fathers? Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of foreign God. As for the man who does this, may the Lord eliminate from the tents of Jacob everyone who is awake and answers, or who presents an offering to the Lord of armies. And this is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and sighing, because he no longer gives attention to the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your marriage companion and your wife by covenant. 
but not one has done so who has a remnant of the spirit. And why the one? He was seeking a godly offspring. Be careful then about your spirit and see that none of you deals treacherously against the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of armies. So be careful about your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. Thank you. God hates divorce, and yet he divorced Israel. It's kind of hard to wrap your head around if you think of it just that way and just these words because can God do things that he himself hates? Does he do things that he himself hates? So um, hanging on to that question, I want to also point out that God says he hates two things here. He hates two things. He says he hates divorce, for I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong, or your version said violence. So in order to understand this part, because I was kind of like, well, what's that mean? Like, what are you covering your garment in? What's that? How's that apply? <laughs> Um, I want to really dig into that part real quick first. So we have to understand the context of this phrase. In the Old Testament, when a man married a girl, he would take his outer garment and he would lay it over her. And this was symbolism. This was to symbol uh, a symbol that he was going to protect her and care for her, make sure she was out of harm's way, and cherish her. So he would take his outer garment off and he would lay it over. And we're gonna see this really quick in the story of Boaz and Ruth. And Happy, I'm gonna have you come up and read. And for this um, slide, I changed the version to NLT only because the, the word choice I felt like gave us a better um, modern day idea of what it means, but I asked Happy to read whichever version she preferred. So go ahead and read Ruth 3, 7 through 9. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down on the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? he asked. I am your servant, Ruth, she said, spreading the corner of Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. Okay, so we see this symbolism here, that Ruth is proposing marriage to Boaz by asking him to put his garment over her. So in today's day, we would say it's more traditional for a man to ask a woman to marry them, but in this situation, it was Ruth. Ruth, who proposed, she said, put your garment over me. She may be this redeemer of my family. I kind of think it's like when I steal my husband's hoodie. He doesn't really get it. He's really annoyed by it. But all I'm saying is, you're my protector. I accept that. <laughs> my gosh. Call me out. 
Oh, but like Daniel preached about last week, he talked about there's typology here and the significance of this tradition. And if you didn't listen to that sermon, I highly recommend that you do because he talked literally just about this, this exact thing, this covering, this this clothing is type, uh, typology for this redeemer job, this redeemer role. And so that's what we see here in this picture in this, that they did. And I think it's super cool. So I uh, highly encourage you to listen to Daniel's sermon and, and go back and connect these dots. Um, super cool. So now you can understand here that God divorced Israel. They released, he released Israel from his protection from this covering that he had over them, if you can imagine it that way. And then he also gave them this legal certificate of divorce. And I kind of imagine that he like pulls his covering over them and then he gives them a certificate saying, I pulled my covering over and that is what happened and this is the way it is now. And this was a response to Israel having broken their side of the covenant. So he voided his. He was able to void his. That's what the divorce was because they had already broken the covenant. So he was in a relationship. Now step back. He was in a relationship with Israel and the covenant had already been broken before the divorce papers were finalized. Okay? And when I went through this, I was like, okay, God hates divorce. Like he says in Malachi, and in Jeremiah, he's the one doing the divorcing. So obviously, I had to look up the word divorce in Malachi. So let's look at which word is used in Hebrew for divorce in Malachi 2. And the word is bagad. I had to look up the pronunciation, too. Uh, So the word is begot, and it does not mean divorce in the terms of sent away or set free, and it does not mean it in the term of a legal thing. It means it in the term of to act unfaithfully, treacherously, or deceitfully. So this is not what we think of when the church says all the time, God hates divorce. Let's read it again with this context. No, it says God hates when you act unfaithfully, treacherously, and deceitfully to people that you are in relationship with. And then it went on to say that he hates the person who's doing it. Shocking. But the church talks about this all the time. God hates divorce. And so I'm going to tell you just a little quick story. I asked permission from the person, but I'm going to share it anonymously. Somebody that I know who is married to a church leader went through a divorce because the church leader was found to be doing some very illegal and um, immoral things. And so she went ahead, she goes through this divorce because he was doing these things and unrepentant for it. And as she's trying to get on her feet, she's starting her business and trying to gain some financial stability. And he said to her, I am worried about the success of your business because God hates divorce. Mm hmm. He said that to her, and I, yeah, yeah, stop, right? Like, like, 
Do you not get that God hates what you have done that caused this divorce, church leader? But it is rampant, a rampant opinion through the church that it is the divorce that God hates when it is truly not. So remember again, God says he hates two things. He hates when you act unfaithfully, treacherously, and deceitfully in somebody that you are in relationship with specifically. And he hates him who covers his garment with wrong. Right? And we're connecting that back to what we know about what that garment signifies. That garment signifies that I am going to protect you. I am your redeemer. And I have covered that duty. I have warped that into something that is wrong into something that is violent, depending on your translation. So what God hates is acts of unfairness and treacherousness towards one's spouse, and this means with anger or betrayal or lying, which is betrayal. And this makes a lot more sense to me, knowing the God that I know and his character and every other aspect of life that I have observed him in my life and that I have learned about him in scripture, that it makes so much more sense that he would not want a woman or a man to suffer in a marriage where they are being treated unfaithfully, treacherously, and being lied to. Makes a lot more sense. Because marriage is this picture of the gospel in action. That's what it's supposed to be, and we're really bad at it. We're really bad at it. But this is what the picture is supposed to be. And there's nothing, nothing that God hates more than a distortion of the picture of his gospel truth. Which is constantly, in not just marriage and what the church teaches about marriage, but in what the church teaches about anything that's a reflection of the gospel, including the gospel story itself, anytime that there is distortion in that, for instance, being saved by works. It is evil. God hates it. He hates the distortion and destruction of the picture of the truth of the gospel. And he isn't placing that animosity on the legal divorce at all. God did that part. He showed us that part. So it's my opinion... And, and you can differ from me if you'd like. But it is my opinion that you can be legally married in a broken covenant. And when that is the case, you have a couple of options. When you are legally married in a broken covenant, God shows you that you have three options. You have... Reconciliation, which is going to take two to make it go right. You have the option of divorce, just as God did with Israel. And then later we'll read that he reconciled. He invited reconciliation. And then the other one is ownership. I'll explain that in a little bit. So for divorce, let's define these again. Divorce, the releasing of somebody from a relationship and a legal dissolve of the terms of the relationship. Reconciliation would be the repair of the relationship with new or renewed covenant terms. And ownership, the last one, which is a relationship without a covenant that requires only one person to serve the other, 
by means of some other binding obligation, feeling, or fear. And that was the easiest thing for us to connect in our brains with that is slavery. So these are our three options. So let's look at the process of reconciliation first. In Jeremiah, God seeks reconciliation and shows us what that looks like. So we're going to read now the rest of that chapter 3. We're going to start back a couple verses into verse 12. I'm going to have Dasha read this, please. Thank you. Go and proclaim these words towards the north and say, Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look upon you in anger, for I am gracious, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your iniquity. But you have transgressed against the Lord your God and have scattered your favors to the strangers under every green tree. And you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. Return, O faithless sons, declares the Lord, for I am a master to you, and I will take you one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. Then I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you on knowledge and understanding. It shall be in those days when you are multiplied and increased in the land, declares the Lord. They will no longer say, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, and it will, no come, it will not come to mind, nor will they remember it, nor will they miss it, nor will it be made again. At that time, they will call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord, and all the nations will be gathered to it, to Jerusalem, for the name of the Lord. Nor will they walk anymore after the stubbornness of their evil heart. In those days, the house of Judah will walk with the house of Israel, and they will come together from the land of the north to the land, to the land that I gave your fathers as an inheritance. Then I said, how I would set you among my sons and give you a pleasant land, the most beautiful inheritance of the nations. And I said, you shall call me my father and not turn away from following me. Surely, as a woman treacherously departs from her lover, so you have dealt treacherously with me. O house of Israel, declares the Lord, a voice is heard on the bare heights, the weeping and the supplications of the sons of Israel, because they have perverted their way, they have forgotten the Lord their God. Return, O faithless sons, I will hear your faithlessness, I'm sorry, I will heal your faithlessness. Behold, we come to you, for you are the Lord our God. Surely the hills are a deception, the tumult on the mountains. Surely in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. But the shameful thing has consumed the labor of our fathers since our youth, their flocks and their herds, their sons and their daughters. Let us lie down in our shame and let, us humili and let our humiliation cover us. For we have sinned against the Lord our God, and we and our fathers, from our e youth even to this day, and we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. Thanks, Dasha. I gave her like the longest passion, or passage because I like to hear her read. <laughs> All right. So this passage shows us these qualifications for reconciliation. So in verse 12, we learn that reconciliation requires grace from the one whom was wronged. The person that was harmed must be willing to forgive. And this part can sometimes be impossible in cases where there's severe abuse and betrayal and trauma. Sometimes that process of reconciliation takes many years 
And sometimes a marriage can't last that long without reconciliation, and it's okay. But whenever possible, God shows us that reconciliation is desired. So, in most cases, in my experience, in my limited experience, forgiveness is, an ex- is extended numerous times before action is ever taken. So in a marriage, things will go wrong maybe every day. And you extend grace and you extend forgiveness over and over and over again before the idea of divorce ever comes around. We see that pretty much always. So it requires grace from the wronged in a big way. It also requires acknowledgement of wrongdoing from the one who did the wrong. And this is a big, huge piece. Because we get to this point over and over, like I just said, you forgive and you forgive and you forgive and nothing ever changes because they don't acknowledge that what they did was wrong. And you can't go anywhere further from there. It says in verse 13, only acknowledge your wrongdoing that you have revolted against the Lord your God and have scattered your favors to the strangers under every leafy tree and you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. I want to clarify, though, really quick, that admission of guilt is not the same as an apology. It's a piece of the apology, but it's not the whole thing. And truly admitting fault and taking ownerships of wrong done and acknowledgement of how wrong those things really were, like, oh, I did that, but it wasn't as bad as you're making out to be. You're overreacting. Like, that, that don't count. You have to really understand how wrong it was, how how far you have fallen short. You acknowledge this, and you also must have a desire to change and do better. And that brings us to the third requirement here, a new understanding and accountability, as we see in verse 15. When, then, I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you knowledge and understanding. And it shall be in those days when you become numerous and are fruitful in the land, declares the Lord. So now you have to learn how to do better. You have to break old habits. And the best and probably only way to do that is to seek wisdom and counsel. To plug into your church. To go to therapy. I know, those are hard words to swallow But you notice that God doesn't just expect Israel to get wise, right? Like he doesn't just tell them, okay, now we're reconciling. You've admitted that you're wrong and everything's going to be great. But he knows better. He says, no, I gave them shepherds to impart wisdom and provide accountability. Perfect timing on that mixtape, guys. He says, then I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you knowledge and understanding. So when David and I were going through our reconciliation process, we both sought counseling. We were both in counseling. And then beyond that, we also confided and found Christian groups of friends that were close to us who loved us both. That's important. Loved us both. And we could count on them to hold us accountable to our new promises and actions. This was imperative to the recovery of our marriage. So David had started meeting with his brothers and his close friends weekly. And had actually started like opening up to them about things that they were struggling with. They weren't going out to coffee and talking about sports and fishing and things that guys, I don't know what guys talk about at coffee. But they weren't talking about those things. They were actually talking about their struggles and the things that were going on in their marriages. 
Again, that's really hard to do. And I imagine, like, it's hard for me to do, and I know it was even harder for my husband to do. So David started meeting with those guys, and I have to tell you that it completely changed our marriage. It was a game changer. It was amazing what it did for my husband to just meet once a week with guys that he knew loved us both, to be able to share what, they were go- what was going on in his heart and in our marriage, and to have them give him wisdom and keep him accountable. And I, I did the same thing. In fact, my friend, my best friend that I confided in the most, drove all the way out here from Palmer to sit right there and stare me down. But I spent a lot of time talking to her, and I knew that she loved me and my husband. She'd grown up with my husband and then just told me I was going to be her best friend when I moved here. True story. And so I knew that she cared about both of us and that she would give me wise counsel and not just be like, yeah, that guy sucks. He's dumb. Like, no, I know that she loves David like she loves me. And so I counted on her for that wisdom. And for both of us, we needed to submit to authority and accountability of others. And it was impossible to see real change without that step. So I think that this is a really important part to not look over. You can't just fix things by yourself. And, I, and just like you could think about how many times you've had the same fight over and over and over again. And you go through the blow up, you have the fight, you apologize, you make temporary changes. But after a few days, weeks, and maybe if you're really lucky, some months, it won't stick. And that's where we have to have humility. Verse 25 shows us that. He says, let us lie down in our shame and let our humiliation cover us. For we have sinned against the Lord our God. We and our fathers, from our youth and even to this day, and we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. And that is a sign that there is lack of humility in your process of reconciliation if you keep coming back to the same problem. And the reason is it's not because when you go through the reconciliation that you're just not genuine about it, but you're only human. So... You have to have the humiliation to not think in your own head, oh, I've got it this time. I'm not going to slip up. It wasn't that bad. That, that thing I did a year ago that I hardly remember wasn't that bad. I'm not that bad. She's overreacting. And he just needs to accept this part of it's who I am. No, listen. Reconciliation without humility is just a Band-Aid on a festering wound. If you aren't moving towards true reconciliation, you're prolonging the destruction of your marriage, not avoiding it. And if reconciliation is not the direction you are moving toward and your heart is hard, you are probably moving towards divorce. And the Lord said to me, this is verse 6, Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, Have you seen what faithless Israel did? She went up on every high hill and uh, under every leafy tree, and she prostituted herself there. And yet, I thought, after she has done these things, she'll return to me. But she did not return, and her treacherous sister Judah saw it, and saw that for all the adulteries of faithless Israel, I had sent her away and given her a certificate of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she went and prostituted herself also. So divorce requires these things. In verse 6, 
It shows us wrongs revealed in pursuit of reconciliation. God did not just immediately throw his hands up and say, I'm done with you, when he saw what had happened. He pursued reconciliation first. And the thing that stops a lot of people from doing that is perfect mixtape message moment, confrontation. Because people fear confrontation. And I have a speculation as to why that is. I think it is because Satan loves turmoil and unforgiveness. And without bringing forth the confrontation, you can never get there. So, it has to happen. If you are moving in the direction of divorce, you cannot just surprise your spouse with, oh, by the way, all these things that you did were terrible. I'm done. I'm leaving. No. You pursue reconciliation first. Then, If it is met with unchanged behavior, verse 7, this is the red flag of red flags. Unchanged behavior, you already know, by the way, what it feels like to have communicated your needs to somebody and have nothing change. I know every one of you in this room has experienced that either with a spouse or somebody else in your life. You've communicated your needs. You did this as a kid, whether you knew it or not, by the way. You communicated your needs, and they weren't met. And it makes you feel like you're not important. You're not a priority. And if that's the case, then you'd be right. The next thing is separation and release. This is verse 8. This part is actually the hardest for a lot of people who have been betrayed by a loved one, a spouse or otherwise. Um, And it it made me, again, my brain went went back to this business conference I went to years ago. Um, And the speaker... She coined this term that she used for describing how to deal with difficult people in business, like difficult customers or difficult like rival businesses, whatever. And she called it the bless and release. This was her attitude about it. And she said it makes much easier business transactions with difficult people. You just listen to them and then you bless and release them and you don't do business with them anymore. It was nice to know you, but we won't be selling to you anymore. So I learned how to bless and release. I cut ties with a lot of customers that week. <laughs> but it's, it stuck with me, this idea of cutting somebody out versus blessing and releasing them. I'm not going to cold shoulder you and give you the silent treatment because that would not bless you. But I can create a boundary. And it can be a blessing to both of us. So then we've got the final step for a legal divorce, verse 8. I'm trying to whip through this because we are late. But in America, he told me I didn't have to worry about that. So it's him, his fault. In America, we consider the legal divorce process, the paperwork, the court, the negotiation, who gets the kids, when they get the kids, how often they get the kids. It's usually about the kids and the house. We think of it that way. But again, I want to remind you that if you are complacent by living in a broken covenant marriage without moving towards reconciliation or divorce, that you are choosing to be subject to a relationship where you are allowing yourself to be deceived by what is holding you back, which is most likely fear. You will make decisions because you're afraid. So we're going to jump into the New Testament really quick. 
Ephesians, Callan is going to read this one for me, Ephesians 5, 6 through 14. So we're going to open up to Ephesians 5. Everybody knows probably in this room that Ephesians 5 is where we have the marriage verses. And we're going to read those in a bit. But first, we're going to back up a little bit into verse 6 um, and read something that just precedes what husband and wives are told to do in Ephesians. So Callan's going to read verses 6 through 14. Don't be fooled by those who try to excuse these sins, for the anger of God will fall on all who disobey him. Don't participate in the things these people do. For once you were full of darkness, but now you have light from the Lord. So live as people of light. For this light within you produces only what is good and right and true. Carefully determine what pleases the Lord. Take no part in the worthless deeds of evil and darkness, Instead, expose them. It is shameful even to talk about the things that ungodly do, people do in secret. But their evil intentions will be exposed when the light shines on them, for the light makes everything visible. This is why it is said, Awake, O sleeper, rise up from the dead, and Christ will give you light. So be careful how you live. Don't live like fools, but live like those who are wise. All right, Make, that, that's where we're ending, I think. What oh, verse are you on? That was 15. Oh, yeah, we're ending at 14. We're oh, good. You're okay. good. You're good. You're dismissed. <laughs> and you're cute. I like your earrings. Okay. <laughs> uh, so, I believe in fighting for your marriage. Okay, I don't want you to ever think that because I say that God doesn't hate divorce that I think that you should get divorced. I don't. I don't just jump to that. Remember, reconciliation, seeking reconciliation comes first. I believe in second and third chances, and I believe in grace and forgiveness, and if I didn't, I wouldn't still be married, okay? But when we face hardness of heart, when our spouse is turned away from you or from, and from God, it's both, and when humility is absent, when admittance of guilt is empty, I'm here to tell you that it's a trap. Slide. It's a trap. It's a trap, but you're not trapped. And that's because we have a super awesome, mighty, powerful, loving, forgiving God. It's a trap, but you are not trapped. Verse 6 said, Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. This is a gospel message for you guys. And I'm here to point out that it says no one. Again, no one. Let no one deceive you with empty words. It does not say in any subtext except for your lying, cheating spouse. And it doesn't say except for anyone who's betrayed you over and over again. Those people, it's okay to let them lie to you because they've gotten away with it already. It says let no one deceive you. But all these things become visible when they are exposed by light. For everything that becomes visible is light. Okay, so now we're going to get into the Ephesians 5.22 on verses that y'all have been waiting for in the marriage sermon. I'm going to have my own husband come up and read them. We're going to start with just Ephesians 5.22 through 24, and we're going to talk to the wives. I'm talking to all y'all, but you know. All right. Before or while he comes up to read this, I will give you a little disclaimer. Like, I get that I'm not the traditional submissive Christian wife. I've heard it before. A lot. <laughs> um, and, a, and that when I was 15, I had, I had a teacher 
when in high school who was also, he was a pastor of a Reformed Baptist Calvinist church. And I was a very challenging student for him. <laughs> and he said to me one day, I was 15, he said, someday I hope you find a man that you're willing to obey. And then he said, he's going to have to be a really strong person. And I, my instinct was, and I did, I laughed really just I, I was like, oh, you're funny. <laughs> and he was like, oh, oh dear. <laughs> but I'm going to go ahead and read verses uh, Ephesians 5, 23 through 24. Wives, subject yourselves to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands and everything. Okay. So, you know, I'm a, I'm a pretty strong-willed, stubborn person. Yeah, I'll have you come back up in a minute and read the rest. Would you say I'm strong-willed and stubborn, David? <laughs> yeah, so um, to say that I dig my heels in is like a cute phrase. I am very stubborn. Um, I like to say that I am a tenacious person, because that sounds nicer. <laughs> um, but I, I do. I have a lot of tenacity. And honestly, I think that like a lot of my favorite women do. A lot of my really good friends are very tenacious women. And I think that it has served me well in my marriage. I think it has. And it makes a lot of sense when we look at we're going to do it again. The actual word for the word submit in the context of Ephesians. This is a Greek word. The word submit, or in some ver versions it says be subject to, is this Greek verb that I'm again not going to pronounce, but you just soak it in. And it's, a, thank you. It's a, <laughs> it's, sure, yeah, that's how it said. Uh, it's a military term. Did you know it's a military term for arranging soldiers in ordered formation to confront an enemy? And there's this root word within the word there in the middle that you see, and it can be translation to set, arrange, order, or deploy. Woo. And it makes a lot of sense when you think about who this letter is written to. Okay, Matt is always saying, it was to them, it's for us. So we need to understand who it was written to, and it's written to the Ephesians. And the Ephesians were known for their heavy military presence. They were a very rich, um, like culturally rich uh, as far as uh, status and money and uh, military. So these people would have known what this word meant because we'll see again later. I'm not going to read it here, but if you keep reading along in Ephesians, the very next chapter starts talking about the armor of God. Well, of course it does because they would have understood what those things were. They were familiar with military terminology. So it's written that way because it was to the Ephesians. So we have to understand that. Okay? So wives, and we know this, wives are not of lesser authority in a marriage. And we can back this up with 1 Corinthians 7.4, which reads, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does, and likewise, equal, likewise, also, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. And this is a picture of equality of authority with love for one another as the desired outcome. And it has to be that way because it's the only way you can have equality without competition, contention, and a power struggle, is if there's love in the center. 
So Paul is using military verbiage, so let's look again at those verses. And I also want you to remember and take into account the story of Ruth and Boaz and the symbolism of placing the covering over her. We talked about that this signified he was her protector. He, she calls him the redeemer of her family. And these are consistent pictures with God's desire for marriage. Now, let's go and look at what he requires from the husbands because he only has a couple verses for us ladies. This is one of those like really very few times that I'm glad I'm a woman. (laughs) Okay, so David, can you come back up? And you read Ephesians 5, 25 through 23 because now we know that you guys are going to be or are the military general in this analogy. 25 through what? 25 through 33. Talking to them husbands. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands also ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church because we are parts of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, as for you individually, each husband is to love his own wife the same as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Cool, thanks. So, continuing looking up these words, because we want to know what it means. So, we looked up what submit means. We understand that part. Let's look at what kind of love husbands are to have for their wives. And I think you're going to hate it. (laughs) Because this word is the Greek word agape. And this is transcendent love. It's the highest form of love. Okay? It is impossible for you, by the way. But this is what you were told to do. You were told to dance. Love is a battlefield. It is the highest form of love. And so you guys have this huge, high, ridiculous calling. And again, I'm very thankful I've got these two little verses that most of the time it makes women in the church cringe because I'm like, oh, my husband, I have to submit to him. What's he do? But we understand now a little bit better that the Ephesians, how the Ephesians would have read this. And that the husbands are responsible for being the protectors, the leaders. This means that you are stepping in front of danger to protect your wife. That she is the site of everything. Every decision you make in your life is done out of agape love for her. Ooh. So you're in charge of cultivating, growing, showing agape love in your marriage, and you are in charge of being a man. I know you hate to hear this from me. Statistically, 50% of you probably hate me after the sermon. (laughs) But um, you're in charge of being the man who steps up in front of perceived danger and challenges, navigates decisions to protect the most precious person in your sight who better be your wife. And you're in charge of making your wife that person every day. 
every day. This is a picture, again, of what God's covenant marriage is. And we are falling short all the time. All the time. And we have to fight harder. Love is a battlefield. All right, so I'm going to end here with just a couple of uh, interesting statistics to really top off what that I think really show the trueness of what God says here in our modern culture today. So everyone's familiar with the, uh, the idea that 50%, the statistic 50% of marriages end in divorce. Um, and I, I know that seems ridiculous, but it's not that surprising if you consider what we've just learned, that it qualifies for divorce. We are very treacherous people. But did you know that women are more likely to file for divorce than men? In fact, 70% of divorces are initiated by women. 70%. And I don't think that's because women are more holy than men, and so we're the ones divorcing the one that's the wrongdoer, and because we are just so great at being married. I don't think it's that. Um, But I do think it's because men have a higher calling in marriage, and because you are compared to Christ, you fall so much shorter. I know that's hard to hear, especially from a woman, but I think that because you are called to give agape love to your wife, because I'm going to tell you that's what she needs from you, it's easy to fall short of that. So here's some interesting things uh, from this. I read this from a a law firm article that gave all these statistics on why women divorce the most often. And it says there's three reasons why they have found that women divorce more often than men. 70% of the divorce that's initiated by the wife says the first one is women are more likely to feel, feel held back in their marriage. And it reads this. While many men do help out wives with chores and caring for children, it is statistically proven that the traditional views of marriage are well behind the times when it comes to gender expectations. And I would add, well behind what God calls you to do. Even if women don't feel this pressure from their husbands, there's a good chance they feel it from other people in their lives and the society around them. The second reason is women often take on more of the emotional burden. It reads, women also tend to take on more of the emotional burden when it comes to marriage and raising children. This is a side effect of the society we've built where men are generally expected not to show emotion. As a result, they're often not taught how to process their emotions and they're less likely to seek professional help when needed. In the end, this can put put additional emotional burdens on the partner, and this is why it is so important that we encourage men to work on their own mental health as well as their communication skills. I'm going to add also for some of us women who struggle with some of those things too, but um, it is, I'm sure even, uh, you could look it up right now, if we want, we have Google in our pockets, but it is probably also the case that most people who seek professional counseling or therapy help are also women. And then at last, women no longer tolerate consistent, unacceptable behavior. Well, I would like to add that we shouldn't. While women may once have felt as though they had no choice but to tolerate unacceptable behavior, remember that's that no choice, they feel that no choice, which means that that option and that tree of reconciliation, divorce, and ownership, the husband owns the wife because she's afraid that she can't leave. There's 
less of that fear in our society now. They're not as reliant on their husbands because it's not the case anymore. For the most part, women are no longer willing to put up with being mistreated, abused, or with infidelity because they are now in a situation where they are better able to earn their own money and get financing for a home or car. Modern women have many more resources available to them these days, and leaving a bad marriage is now an option. On a Christian perspective of this, I would say that if you are in a bad marriage, no matter what culture you are in, and it is biblical for you to leave, and that is what God desires for you to be healthy, living in fear is the only part that's holding you back because God will provide. So if you are staying in a marriage, or you know someone who's staying in a marriage because they are afraid that they can't support themselves, their children, what's going to happen with my mother, the fears that she had, it is because fear is what you are relying on. And if you know me, my, in the verses on my hands, that fear lies, and God does not give us the spirit of fear, but of power, love, and sound mind. So I want you to take that into consideration as a Christian perspective of this. So I want to go ahead and conclude now. I want to pray for our marriages, um, for both the husbands and, and wives in this room. And I want to do something that I, I think like 70% of you are going to hate me for, but that's okay. Uh, hopefully you don't. I don't think you actually will. But I did buy the husbands in the room a gift. I got you all what would Jesus do bracelets. So would you come up here? Someone could pass them out to the husbands. Because there is no one in the world who should have this on their wrist as a reminder more than husbands. Am I right? <laughs> so grab yourself a reminder bracelet because you are the ones who should be asking yourself this every day. And women, wives... Yeah, go ahead and take one for your husband at home. You could just... Tell him about the sermon and the parts of the sermon that you'd like him to hear. <laughs> All right, husbands, take those bracelets. But wives, I want to share something with you that is personal for me. I want you to know that you are going into battle with your husband every day for your marriage. And something that I personally struggle with is allowing my husband to be a part of that with me, and to love me. I have a hard time accepting it. And I'm going to give you a real example. When my husband tells me that I look nice and that I'm beautiful, I brush it off. And I say, you're just saying that. Oh. Oh. I don't have an easy time allowing my husband to adore me. I really, really struggle with it. And I think we need to do a better job at giving our husbands the opportunity to love us. Because we are really good at turning cold shoulders, ladies. We're really good at ignoring them. <laughs> I don't tell my husband about all my struggles like I should because I feel like I should be able to handle them on my own. That's not very fair to him who's called to be there for me in those times. So whatever your struggle is in your marriage, I know that you know it better than I do, and I know your spouse probably knows what your struggles are even better than you do. 
I want you to talk about it. I want you to talk about those things. How can you help the other one fulfill their role better? How can you as a wife help your husband and accept that your husband is loving you and cherishing you and doing these things for you without turning him down all the time? Because it's a real blow when you turn your husband away from when he is giving you affection. It's not very encouraging. So let's pray. I know uh, I'm going to call Matt up here to, to pray too. We're going to pray for two things. Um, and I want you to walk away with these thoughts too throughout the week, throughout your marriage really. The first one is, is your marriage covenant consistent with God's desire for marriage? Evaluate that now. Because if it's not, it's okay to start that right now. I don't care if you've been married for 11 years or more. If you have realized that your marriage covenant is not based on what God's design for marriage is, start now. Have a vow renewal or don't, but start now. And if you are living in a broken covenant and you are married right now, I need you to evaluate what your options are and talk about them and start with that first step, which is seeking reconciliation. All right, so let's pray. And we're going to pray over our marriages. And then are you going to pray afterwards for the people in the um, house that we wanted to pray for? Okay, perfect. All right, dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the institution of marriage. So we by ourselves are not everything we can be without the body as a church and without our partners. You've designed it this way. For us to strengthen each other as iron sharpens iron, our marriages do the same. We ask that you give us guidance and wisdom to be in a covenant that brings you glory and that demonstrates to the world around us what you do for us, who you are. Lord, we ask that you give us the ability to confront each other and be accountability partners within our church, within these marriages, to help each other out because marriage is the most important relationship in this world, in this church. It's the foundation that we have to get this one right. Oh God, I thank you for all of the marriages in this room. I thank you for the examples that they're setting for our children. I ask that you grow our children up to have even more beautiful and wonderful marriages than we have and that they can teach us something someday about that too. But I ask for healing in these marriages. I know every one of the marriages in this room needs some healing. I ask that you guide us in that process of reconciliation because we know it is not favorable to divorce, but Lord, give us the wisdom to know when that is the choice that is right for us. But I ask that you soften hearts in this room and you soften the hearts of the people that we interact with every day as we watch other marriages around us struggle. Lord, thank you for the opportunity that this church gives people like me and, and every other person who spoke this summer to share the things that are on our hearts that you've revealed to us in our experiences and in our prayers with you. It's a beautiful thing. In Jesus' name, amen. 